Good morning, church. What is the most Christ-like thing that we can do? That's a question, isn't it? Love the Father. That's really good. That's good. And that love means that we can do things that Christ has called us to do. One of the biggest things that He did, and of course the, the thing that stands out in our mind is, of course, the cross. At the cross, He died for our sins. That means He forgives us. Absolute, total forgiveness when we trusted in Christ. What is that Christ-like thing that we can do? Well, we can't die for people's sins, but we can sure do what He did in that there is forgiveness to be given. And in Proverbs 19.11, it backs that up because it says something like this. It is the glory of a man to overlook a transgression. A glory of a man to overlook a transgression. What a privilege we have to be able to do that. And in Christ we can. So, as we continue on in the epistle of 2 Corinthians, we're right in the midst of a passage that is dealing with discipline and forgiveness. How do we get here? How, how have we gotten to this point right here in, in chapter 2 as, as Paul wrote this? How did he arrive at this? Well, remember, the Apostle Paul had evangelized the people in Corinth, set up the church there, it was formed. Difficulties arose within that church pretty quickly. He wrote 1 Corinthians to answer some problems that were going on in that new church at that time, which was to be expected. Of course, they were a very worldly city, just like every other city really is. So you would expect problems to arise in a, in a young church. There were further problems that arose, not just in the 16 chapters of uh, the First Corinthians, but there were other things. Of course, he had written other letters which we don't have, not necessarily inspired, kind of hidden, uh, lost, I guess you could say. But some problems that really started arising that created a real havoc in Corinth was Paul had authority as the apostle sent from God, gave him direct revelation as he wrote first, second Corinthians here, but he is actually one who was not only with all that authority that God had given him, of course he's a slave of Christ, but here's the problem, there were people that were saying that he really wasn't in authority. He did not get authority from God. Some were calling him all sorts of different things, and uh, actually, there was some people that contested against him, not only false teachers outside the church, but inside the church. There might have been one man who was like a ringleader, possibly, in opposition to the Apostle Paul. And of course, Paul has to defend himself as he really defends the gospel. That's really what he's about. Um, and that one man that caused the problem as a ringleader, as there are other people, it's possible that that may be the cause of this passage that we're looking at today. Kind of how we've gotten there. There was discipline that was to be done with that individual. 
church took its time in doing it. And maybe this particular one, they did discipline this particular man. And now Paul is telling the Corinthians, okay, the discipline is enough. It's done. Now what you need to do is forgive this offender. You've done what you were supposed to do. Now he's repenting. You want to forgive him. And that's where we are at in our Second Corinthians. We looked at about two weeks ago with the conscience. Paul said, my conscience is true. I know it's right because it's built upon who Christ is and what I said was, was of truth as he got all these charges. Then last week we looked at the fact that he had said he was going to come two times to them. And at that particular time he didn't. He didn't come. He writes Second Corinthians here after he had written some other letters. He said, the reason I didn't come at that time is that I didn't want to cause sorrow because I know that this time I'm not so sure what's going on there in the church. And I'm afraid as I have had to speak heavy against some things that were happening before that caused sorrow. And of course, it was creating a repentance, really. He didn't know that. Titus was sent to the church. Titus came back and said, it's all good, Paul. (laughs) They have done, out of obedience, what was supposed to have been done. Everything is okay. The man had repented of his sin. And now he says, okay, forgive him. Because that could be hanging over for quite some time. That's where we're at. That's where it's all been leading. And with that, it, it, it tends to make sense because it seems like it could be a mumble-jumble the last few weeks as we're trying to get the idea of what Second Corinthians is dealing with. Now, when we get into, after we do our section a day, 5 through um, uh, 11, from here on out, we get into a lot of some doctrine and, and a lot of other things that are really important. Not that this is not important. This is very important. But he shares his feelings here. Have you seen Paul with his feelings his, as he talks about all the affliction that he had had? And yet, he is saying, I comfort you. I give these words of comfort. Paul really cares about the church. So that's where we're at. Why don't we uh, stand? Grab the Bibles. Grab the Word of God that speaks to us and let's see what He has for us today. I think it can be very edifying. Second Corinthians chapter 2, starting at verse 5. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. 
For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Let's pray. Father, we desire to honor you today as we should be honoring you in every moment of our lives. You have this word here this morning for us. And we pray that we would learn a little bit more about who you are and what you have for us as we talk about church discipline, as we talk about forgiveness, and then also how Satan can come in and thwart what the truth is. So Lord, give us guidance as your Holy Spirit instructs us through your word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Second Corinthians chapter two, or verse uh, verse five. If anyone has caused sorrow, and there was that going on, Paul didn't want to bring that, and that's the reason he decided not to come when he did, whenever he had originally planned it. He writes this letter now after he's heard good news. And he's speaking very delicately here. Uh, and indefinitely, he doesn't even bring up the, the man's name here because things have been done in Corinth. doesn't name the individual. He says, but if any has caused sorrow. And of course, there were. And so he, he speaks in this rather... Quietly, not really strong, but he definitely brings out the truth here. And we really don't know who this man is and why uh, and what the problem is. Um, some say it's the man in First Corinthians chapter five um, dealing with immorality, and he had been uh, doing a, a very immoral sexual uh, act and. Paul had told them to make sure that they disciplined that man, to turn him over to Satan for the reason that he would be built back up. There's always a reason for that. But that was showing that there is a discipline that is to be done when it something goes outside and it's, it's, uh, it's wrong, it doesn't honor God. So that was the, the thought. It could be that man, although I really believe that it could be Another man. This man is one who has been causing problems in the church in Corinth. And, and it's like he's operating within the church. Not just from the outside, but he's in there. And maybe he had confronted Paul. And maybe he had uh, been the one to instigate more others to follow what he was doing. Anyway, if that's the case, it could very well be we know that Paul is saying, okay, this is what has happened. Now here's what we do next. Paul knows who it is. The Corinthians know who it is. We don't. I think there's a good idea of what it could be though as we put that forth. So he's referring to him somewhat indefinitely here. If such a one has caused sorrow or caused harm, if there is some, and it definitely had, Definitely more than implying that. He has a compassionate concern for this individual who had been disciplined in the church. 
It says in Proverbs 27.6, this is a very helpful verse to us. Because sometimes the truth really has to be brought out. He says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. The wounds of a friend? Doesn't that sound opposite? Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. People can say, hey, everything's okay, you know, trying to make you feel good and everything, but it's not based on truth. But one who brings truth can bring a wound. It's not to bring harm, but a wound that makes them aware that they have sin. And they need to repent of that. I think of David and sin that he had with Bathsheba and all the other sins that went with that. And then the prophet comes to him, Nathan, says, you are the man. Told him what he had done. He realized that he had sinned against God. Ultimately, when we sin, it's really against God and God alone. Even though it can hurt others and be sinful at the same time, it really comes to the fact that the holiness of God is something to be revered. And so the church is supposed to take care of that. Friends are supposed to go to others whenever uh, there has been uh, complication. It seems to be sin, maybe possibly. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. So, there's the idea. The, the friends come to other friends, sometimes have to wound them, but it's for a good thing. Matter of fact, it affects not only maybe one other person, but it can affect all, can affect everybody in the church. Of course, we all sin. We're all affected by that. <laughs> we're, we're one here, but uh, when a person has sinned in the local church, it's not that he has just harmed himself or a friend that's involved, but the whole church is involved. All of you, he says. If any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me. Paul says, I'm not taking this offense. I'm letting it bounce off of me. But he says, but in some degree, in order not to say too much to all of you, this has affected the whole church there, whether they realized it or not. The sin of one member, when it goes outside the church and something that is that is seen by others and they know. In the Old Testament, that was uh, seen where you had people sinning and there would be a whole bunch of the congregation also get inflicted with punishment. The sin of one Israelite sometimes could mean death to many. When you think of Achan, he's a shining example of that in the Old Testament. Of course, he, of course we know what certain other Old Testament characters did and, and God would bring on His punishment. So in the local church... When I sin, the body is affected. So, if we have some kind of sin going, we've got to realize that, hey, how can this affect others? So this is where we get into the aspect of uh, biblical discipline and, and, and church discipline. We, we find it throughout Scripture uh, very much. The Bible has a lot to say about it. If you went through the New Testament, just the New Testament, you'd take out chapters of the New Testament you could write down the numbers in that and the designation of those chapters and you could start looking at it. I think you would be startled to find out how many times that God mentions uh, discipline. And I think we'd be startled to discover all these chapters that are specifically to biblical discipline. One of the, I think, main ones, 
Jesus spoke about was in Matthew 18. This is the order that it is to be done in. Jesus has mentioned that He's going to build His church. you remember that? He takes care of His church. gives instructions to the church of how it is to be done. He says in verse 15 of Matthew 18, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. So it all starts with that. One individual has been confronted by sin, or at least maybe he thinks so, maybe it's not. But at least it's a one-on-one situation. That's where it starts. We don't start with talking about others to others to somebody else. It says you go to that brother. But, if he has a sin and he says, so what? I'm going to keep on doing it. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Now you've got others involved, and they witness to see what's going on. He says, I could care less about you guys. I'm going to continue to sin, and I'll keep coming to church when I like. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now it goes to the whole church. It's the third time. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile, a tax collector. They were considered sinners. Treat him as if he is a sinner. That he's not even a believer. Treat him like a tax collector. You see them? Of course, Matthew is a tax collector. He's writing this, isn't he? He became a Christian, didn't he? So he's not considered in that kind of group anymore. Matter of fact, he left it. But anyway, he says, treat them as... I don't know. Sometimes you see somebody doing things and you begin to wonder, are they really a Christian? I mean, it's very apparent what's happening. Sometimes it confuses the church. confuses people on the outside. He says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Very saying when you have God's people come together and they witness this and they see such a one who is so bold and brash and he doesn't care about changing. They did it once, they did it twice, they did it three times before they even did anything. And then they're to look at that one as an unbeliever. So the two or three, that's dealing with the people and even more that witness to this then. So it's not just what one person says about another person, but they really check this out and examine it. It's extremely important because it's all over the New Testament. Of course, that's a key one. And of course, that's what Jesus came up with. So we don't want to avoid that. There's more than one chapter here if you were to look in. First Corinthians, you see it all over the place in there. And Second Corinthians, you see it here in this passage. And Thessalonians, you see it there. You get it in Galatians chapter 3 and Galatians chapter 5. You just go on. There's something like 20 chapters, somebody said. I think S. Lewis Johnson was kind of counting it, what he came up. 20 chapters dealing with, uh, devoted to this important subject of discipline. When we think of the benefits of discipline, we see how it can help people's own lives. Matter of fact, it can expand to their own family, personal family lives. 
family, for example, that doesn't discipline, if the father and the mother don't discipline their children, what are they going to turn out to be? If they don't put, they aren't to do that. That's their duty to discipline children in the right manner, in the right way, in a, in a biblical way. That's because they love them, so they do it out of love. Matter of fact, you always heard this before. It's going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. Parents really mean that because they don't. They don't want the child to get in trouble. They don't want them to sin, do they? So they, a godly parent would say, that's going to stop right now. If it doesn't, they have to bring on the discipline, however that may be. It's an expression of the the love of parents for the children, that kind of love that children, I think, can ultimately thank God for because they were trained in that way. That's put forth in Scripture. So there's benefits of church discipline has a similar character that it does at home. There's a danger in discipline. The danger is that a person might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. might be way too much a person who has been disciplined. And we see in the last verse here that we're speaking of, we'll get to that in a moment, it's dealing with what Satan can do and the power that he has to take advantage of biblical discipline. In this case, this man here could have gone to despair if he's just hanging out there. He doesn't have any support from the church. That's what the church is about. It's it's to support them. There's only one reason, basically. Well, there's a lot of reasons, but what is the real reason for discipline? To restore such a one back into the fellowship and the joy that God has planned in the first place. So there's a necessity of it. There are the benefits there are perils to this in, in biblical revelation as Satan so much can take that and run with it. Now the reformers, reformers and you think of the, the Puritans, they had a fascination, it's a biblical fascination with the nature of the church. It's a great institution, the church. The family is an institution. The government is an institution. These are all Items that came from God. The church is an institution. God built it. Christ built the church. The nature of the church is an incredible thing as Christ instills in it. The reformers were responsible for this kind of reformed or the, the new church building again. It had been so much under legalism and laws and and everything else except for Scripture. So they reformed. And they saw that discipline was the mark of a church as they read through Scriptures. It's a mark of a church to discipline. Now, in the body of Christ today, throughout local churches, this is not a thing that's practiced. It's very rare. Because you would be judging. Because you would be not tolerant. Those sound like the worldly things that rule that realm today, doesn't it? But God has His instructions. We said, just doesn't seem right. Just let them do whatever they want to do. It's okay. Just overlook it. That's really what it can be said. Uh, a, a church that doesn't use discipline is one that doesn't have the marks of the church. That mark is not a mark of them. I have to challenge the fact, well, what other things are you not 
doing, but the features that characterize a Christian church there, that's, that's one of them. The idea of peace at any price in the church is, is wrong. There is a need for church discipline. And, and to tell you, to think on it even stronger, it's leaven. Jesus compared it to leaven. It's leaven that can spread and can affect others as well. It affects the whole church. So there's a zeal here that Paul has for exercising discipline. We should never forget that, but it is always to be done with compassion. And I think that's really what Paul is saying here since it's already happened. He says, sufficient for such a one as this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. It's sufficient. It's done. It's taken care of. Don't continue on with, with a discipline there. <clears throat> like I was saying earlier, parents who don't discipline, they're not going to be successful parents. If they, and they can discipline and go the other way. If they don't discipline with compassion and love and affection, then that's not done with the biblical way either, is it? It has to have that balance. The aim of discipline, like we say, is not simple penalty. In fact, it really comes down that they are to be corrected. It's designed to correct, to restore, to cause that individual to grow, to prosper. That is the idea of discipline. It's not a shunning where you kick them out of the community and say, be done with you. It's something, though, that can be really good. And like we said in Proverbs, in uh, chapter 27, verse 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. So there's a difference between hurting someone, wounding, and harming someone. You see what that can be? And that's what Paul really understands here as he wants to get it across to them. It's necessary, but it must be done with out of, out of, out of love, compassion. The word there for punishment that's found in 6, the word there is an official, it means an official disciplinary act. Epitomia. An official disciplinary act where people recognize that we did our Matthew 18 go to 1 Corinthians 5 verse 4 and we'll see it being practiced in the church Jesus instructed it 1 Corinthians 5 verse 4 and 5 in the name of our Lord Jesus when you are assembled and I with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. We're talking about this is so serious. <laughs> it's, it's taken all the way to the point that you know, there's going to be a judgment later. It was an immorality. It doesn't even exist among the Gentiles that he had his father's wife. That's what's, what's going on with that particular instance. And we see what Paul had to do. <laughs> and I know this sounds sounds terrible. This is why people would say, well, Paul wasn't inspired <laughs> for a lot of reasons. Here it's saying, I delivered him over to Satan for destruction of the flesh. 
but he's concerned with his spiritual aspect. So let Satan do the work on him. When one is out of the church, they no longer have that protection. Not that Satan can't tempt us and test us and, and, and kind of give us all sorts of problems, but it's nice to be under the veil of the church who prays for you. But once you're out there alone, of course in our system today, one can go to another church that doesn't practice discipline, that doesn't care about their sin, and they just take them on in. And the thing is, if that church would cooperate with the other church, they'd find out there was a major problem, and there was a reason why that was done, if it was done with truth and love. Of course, other churches, well, you can come on and join us. What if that person had done an immoral act that was obvious before all? If the church would say, we respect what you guys are doing, we're not going to bring them in. That's why it's really hard to do a church discipline because people just go down to the next church on the corner there. But the thing is, it it is to be practiced anyway. Uh, Verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 5. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a viler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Paul says, don't even have fellowship with them. Well, that's pretty remarkable. Is that right? Let's look in Second Thessalonians chapter 3. One has to be really careful when they interpret these passages. Because you could start looking for any kind of sin and if you didn't like somebody, get them kicked out. may not be the reason why. 1 Thessalonians 3.6 But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always think kindly of us longing to see us... Uh, you know what? I read 1 Thessalonians. Just a bonus. Chapter 2, chapter 3 here. 2 Thessalonians. Let's go to 2 Thessalonians 3. I know it's here somewhere. And it might be that... Okay, verse 6, right? Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received us. Somebody who is unruly. It sticks out. It's embarrassing to the church. Verse 14 and 15. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So we want to make sure that they're restored. Look in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. One's really having a difficult time spiritually. Burdens are coming upon him, it says in chapter 6, verse 1 of Galatians. Brethren, even if anyone is caught and in trespass, you who are spiritual, that's any Christian, you should be spiritual, filled with God's Spirit, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one look into yourself so that you too will not be tempted. We all are in the same sense that we could fall into the same trap. And he says here, if he's caught, if he has landed in the trap, he says, restore him. One going to one, restore them. Boom. It's all done. Nipped in the bud right there. But you do it in the spirit of gentleness. 
Now that is Christ-like, isn't it? That's what it's about. It shouldn't even get all the way to the third trial of one. It should be done right there, right off the bat. So there's our idea of discipline. We'll move to the second one. It's dealing with forgiveness and comfort. After a pretty hard teaching on something that seems uncomfortable, we need some comfort, right? That's that's the beauty of God's Word. I didn't choose this particular passage. This is where we were at and we cannot say, I think I'll skip this section this week and move on. That's why Grace Community Church actually started. Did you know that? That's why a Bible study and then extended on into the church was because there was a church discipline to be done by somebody who flaunted that the Word of God was really not her authority as she spoke before the whole church, a very young church at that time, and said, I don't have anybody over me and the Word of God is not my authority either. And so I went to some of the leaders and I said, don't we have a problem here? Shouldn't all... You've got to know her. You know, the way she was raised and everything. She didn't really mean that. I said, well, we've heard her say this before. And they did not go about what should have been done. And it did cause a real ruckus. And the Lord moved us on. And so here we are today. (laughs) In this church... We have had, sadly to say, we've had to practice discipline a few times. The ones who've been around here a long time remember that. It hasn't been very recent at all. I thank the Lord for that. It's not something that you really want to do. I mean, of course, there's individuals that go up to individuals want to build each other up. Maybe it starts with that. We, we discipline ourselves. That's really what it starts with. We want to kill Christ. Well, there is... If one does not forgive... It's a sin. It's a grave sin to not forgive. It's terrible. It's you just compare it with the act that the other guy did. It goes against the heart of Christianity. Look at the warnings in Scripture if one does not have a spirit of forgiveness. Look at Matthew chapter six, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaking. Matthew six, fourteen and fifteen. Give some warnings. <clears throat> For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Whoa! That's a serious warning, is it not? He says if you forgive others, you have a blessing from God. He forgives you. But if you don't forgive, that's the very character and nature of a Christian, is that He will forgive because that is the essence of what God has done for us, right? Uh, go to chapter 8. Well, tell you what. Back up to chapter 5, 23 and 24. Oh, it's a I was going to get to, but it's quite one in length. I'm, I might go to that moment, though. Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar... And then remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother 
and then come and present your offering. So he says, in your worship, if you have something against someone, go to them. And then worship. So there are warnings there about forgive, uh, forgiveness and if we don't, uh, unforgiveness is what he warns against. Forgiveness is really just a wonderful, it's a lovely reality. It's not practiced in the world today per se. Not really, not uh, through the person of Christ. And of course, that's where we get forgiveness anyway. It's a character of God, nature of God. It's been said like this. In fact, forgiveness is the most noble act that one sinner can do for another sinner. I'm going to say that again. Forgiveness is the most noble act that one sinner can do for another sinner. I quote that from John MacArthur. The most noble act. Jay Adams further wrote, said it a different way, forgiveness is the oil that keeps the machinery of the Christian home and church running smoothly. Isn't that beautiful? It's the oil in this machinery. The home and the church, it runs smoothly. Nothing is more important to life and home or life in the church than forgiveness of our sins and then also forgiveness that we put to others. It's it's a promise. Forgiveness is a tremendous promise coming from God to the repentant sinner. Because this applies to every one of us. We all sin. We sin before the cross. We still sin. We still have that battle, that struggle. He wants us to affirm our desperate need that we have. We come running to Him. When it's presented to us, we need Him. Our own sinfulness seems to want to separate us from Him. That will not happen if you're His. But That sin will never be remembered. You know what He says in the Old Testament so much as far as the East is from the West? It's buried in the deepest depths of the sea. <laughs> That's forgiveness by God. And it will never be brought up in the mind of God. He forgets it. Unbelievable. Aren't you glad He doesn't keep reminding you of your sinful past? <laughs> the enemy will do enough of that, won't he? Yeah, that's right. Thanks. <laughs> that is absolutely true. And that's where He wants to take you. There will never be a charge from God that will ever successfully be laid against us because of what Christ did. Isn't that beautiful? That's looking at the cross now, seeing it from this angle. It's magnanimous. I think it's far-reaching. I think it's, it's startling. It's astounding that God would do that because that's not human. We think, I'll forgive once. All the world does this. They have three strikes and you're out. I'm not so sure that's the right way to apply the kind of punishment needs to be done whenever there are crimes. <laughs> Something to be paid for there. But we're talking about this astounding promise that He gives coming from a heart of a loving and forgiving God. He is the compassionate one. Where does love come from? Only from God. Where does forgiveness come from? Only from God. His Loving kindness, His faithfulness, His graciousness that He has towards penitent sinners, and we know it. We don't have to look around to see others. We can just look at ourselves. That's all you need to do. And you say, thank God my sins 
are taken. Taken away. It's an attitude in the heart. It's not having personal pride that sticks up there. I can't. Listen, I'll forgive him, but I'll never forget it. That's that's not the biblical <coughs> forgiveness. Wounded ego. It means that I hold no personal pride, no wounded ego, no self-pity. Bitterness. Man, we can take on bitterness, can't we? And hang on to that. He says we have a good conscience. You don't want to hang. You don't have bitterness. Vengeance. We want to take on vengeance, right? Get back at them a little bit. It's a heart attitude. Lovingly, eagerly waiting for sinners to be restored. They offended you. They didn't offend you. Against God and God alone, they sinned. You really should just say, "Boom!" Bounces off of me. Goes right back to God. Right? I'm not offended. That's what Paul is saying here in our Second Corinthians passage. Was but he was the one that was attacked. Oh, the character of God. He has a forgiving heart. Forgiveness is the character of God. The world doesn't understand that at all. <laughs> Loving kindness, it's just a part of his nature. He is gracious, he's merciful, he's tender hearted. He is kind towards sinners. What kind of God is this? Look at Nehemiah. Nehemiah is one of the it's the book that we're doing on Tuesday nights. We were just here real recently. Nehemiah nine, verse seventeen. Speaking of the nation of Israel and their history, they refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds which you had performed among them. You know what God did for Israel? He looked back and He fed them. He gave them water. He gave them everything they needed. Took them out of the bondage of Egypt. Took them out of that... That's representing a sinful lifestyle as He set them free. Provided for them. Gave them everything they needed. Gave them the oracles of God. The Word of God came through the Jews. He performed just amazing things for them. And they refused to listen. So they became stubborn, appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. They wanted to go back. Back to Egypt. So you want to go back to Egypt. (laughs) Sorry, Chief Green there. (laughs) The manna. But you are a God of what? Forgiveness. Each and every one has that offered to us. I think that's incredible, isn't it? Here's the promise of forgiveness. Did you know you can have your sins taken away? <laughs> I don't like that word sins. People might say. I don't that's that sounds uncomfortable to me. By the way, I'm not a sinner anyway. <laughs> this is a lost person. <laughs> that's the first thing they need to know. How desperate they are. They're in need for a giving God. And the good news is offered. For, it's the balm in Gilead. B-A-L-M. Right? It's the medicine to get into the wound and make them heal. To restore them. He says in that verse also, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. This is our God, folks. And when we were talking about discipline earlier, I'm sure there were some that were getting very uncomfortable and said, what is this doing in the Bible? 
Like I say, I probably wouldn't choose that on my own. But then you see in the very next verse, and the verses proceeding after that, here's the answer to it. There's always the bad news that people have to see that they are trying to cover over. They're putting blankets and everything over them saying, we don't sin, we're fine. Tolerate, tolerate us. We like to do whatever we want to do, right? <laughs> They're in sin. They need to hear the good news. The gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ that they can be forgiven and their sins cast away forever and have eternal life to be with Christ forever. That is the message we have. We start with bad news, but here's the good news. Right? We need both of those. Psalm 99, verse 8. Psalm 99, 8. O Lord our God, You answered them. You were a forgiving God to them and yet an avenger of their evil deeds. Yes, he has to punish the evil, doesn't he? A Christian has his evil deeds taken care of at the cross. It has to be punished. The sins, my sin went on Christ. Boom. What a trade was made because His righteousness then was given to us. Transferred to us. We are reconciled to God because of this work of Christ. And then verse 9 after that says, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy hill. For holy is the Lord our God. He is one that is pure and clean He is transcendent. He is set apart. He is a holy God without sin. We have sin. And He says, we'll cast it away forever. Character of God. Who is the supreme example? Who is it that we can look at that's a person without sin And He takes away our sin. Jesus Christ is our example. Luke 23.34 On the cross He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. These are the ones that are killing Him. Remember? Forgive them for they know not what they do. That's a supreme example. Paul is an example. When he made the visit to Corinth, we read that earlier in 1 Corinthians 5. His, and here we have it now again that it had to be done. And somebody and some people were undermining his very life and his very ministry. Just tearing Paul apart. They attacked the very integrity of who Paul was about. They attacked him. There needed to be forgiveness. There needed to be restoration. And based on the reports of Titus, Paul says, okay, now the discipline can cease. Paul knows forgiveness. He says, forgive him. Restore him fully to the fellowship of Christ. I mean in every way. Invite him in. Hey, invite him to the banquet. You know, Remember the one that was familiar with the prodigal son? And of course, son came 
back. I just wanted to just do work for whatever it was. It says, boldly, the Father hugs him and says, prepare a banquet, a feast for him. That's what happens to us. Restored fully to the fellowship. Look at Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other. And here's the example. Just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. <laughs> look what Christ did. And you say, look, you know what you did? Christ forgave you. You must do that to others also. Colossians 3.13 Bearing with one another. Bear one another's burdens. And forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Do you see how noble it is? It is showing the glory of God. As His forgiveness works in us, it's not natural to forgive. That's right. It's supernatural. This is coming from Christ. Christ alone. A true forgiveness. Incredible. Incredible. Mark eleven twenty five in the Gospels. Mark eleven twenty five. What a subject, isn't it? Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. And he says, But if you don't forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. We can elaborate on that. Don't have enough time. The idea is saying, forgive. That's a command. You have no choice. You can say, but, 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 you don't know what they said to me. You don't know what they did to me. Forgive them. How much? How much? Peter asked that. <laughs> it was known that, hey, seven times, right? Seven times? <laughs> Count that as okay. Seventy times seven. And Jesus is saying that means really you just keep forgiving. You don't count 490. (laughs) You're not forgiving in the first place if you're counting these, right? That's a tough thing to do, isn't it? That's an amazing thing that He commands us. It sure goes against the grain of the flesh. Back to our second Corinthians. If anyone has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me. Paul says, I'm not holding it there and bitter here. But in some degree, in order not to say too much to, to all of you, sufficient for such a one is this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Forgive and comfort him. Comfort him. Okay, I'll forgive, but I'm not going to comfort. <laughs> it says comfort. And you know what the word is there for comfort? We've seen it in chapter 1 before. It's para, kaleo. Para, alongside, parallel. Kaleo means to call. To call alongside. It means to go alongside. To encourage, to strengthen. To come alongside that one. Forgiving, coming alongside. He's saying, if he caused sorrow, it's not to me. I don't take it personally. 
because he's offended me. I'm offended. No. Remove the offense. It's done. Paul's saying, my ego is not involved here. I'm not going to do some kind of a vengeful thing. By the way, the word there in our 2 Corinthian passage, comfort him otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I mean, the, the, the bitterness, the despair, now could be happening to that, that one person. And the word overwhelmed, it's carapino. And it means to be consumed. It means to be swallowed up. To be devoured. To drown. Do you want any of your fellow believers to just drown in their despair and where they're at? No. He says that's what can happen. You don't want them to be overwhelmed by sorrow. That's where encouragement comes in. And so Paul said, hey, I'm not wallowing in any kind of vengeance. But don't let him be devoured or be wallowing in this sorrow. Galatians 6.1, we read it earlier, says restore such a one. The ones who have the burdens, take up their burden along with them. Restore them. And we're talking about being restored to just, not just being restored, but restored to joy. He says, Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for Him. For this end... Also I wrote so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. A lot here in this, but we need to bring the person to joy, put joy back in his life. He's had enough pain, it's time for joy. Psalm 51, David had sinned. It's a great psalm to go to when we have sinned and we want to confess. Confess to the Lord. Psalm 51, verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. I've had that. I know what it is. Restore it to me. Sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. To be restored back into joy. John 15. Jesus speaking to the disciples. John 15, verse 11. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. You know what He wants? He wants us to have joy. Not just joy, but full joy. All the time. He says rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. John 16, verse 24. He wants us to rejoice. Until now you have asked for nothing in My name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. John 17, 13. I'm just going to read one more of these. This is the high priestly prayer for us. Jesus speaking to the Father and He's praying for the disciples, but He's praying for us sitting right here today. Now I come to You, Father. 
And these things I speak in the world so that they may have joy made full in themselves. <laughs> it starts with verse 14. I have given them your word. <laughs> connection. We're about done. Reaffirm your love. Throughout. Reaffirm, reaffirm your love. Ratifying a covenant. It's a formal conclusion. It's a matter of certainty. People know about it. It's announced. The punishment was to be announced as the people witnessed what was going on. And then there's a formality in reaffirming their love. It's a lack of love when we don't forgive. He wanted them to prove their obedience as he said in uh, verse 9. It's a test. It's a test to prove their obedience. For this end I wrote, that's the letter, the, the severe letter that he had written, that I might put you to the test. I wanted to see if you'd really respond to this. Paul says, I wrote that letter to see how you'd respond. I wanted to, for you to see this. It was to be exercising discipline. It wasn't for me. It was for you. I wanted to test you to find out if you were obedient in this difficult thing. As a church as we know today, I think it's failing this test abysmally. They won't even... They won't preach from the pulpit sin. So if the preacher and the people don't believe there's sin, then what is there to discipline? in our own self. We first discipline ourselves. I think that's the whole idea. We wouldn't have anybody having to come to us be disciplined. And it's to restore the fellowship. By this, all men know that you're My disciples if you have love for one another. John 13, 34, 35. How does the world know we love each other? That we really care deeply? What's manifest in matters, even in forgiveness and what have you. And he says, all of this is to be done in the presence of Christ at the end of verse 10. This is for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Who better than to bring in Christ in the middle of all this? That's what it's about. All messages are going to focus on Christ. It eventually turns to that, doesn't it? He says, the reason we do this and be obedient is because Christ is present. Do you guys believe that Christ is present in this worship today? We worship Him. He is here. He is with us. He's pleased as we worship Him. In the presence of Christ, Paul lived his whole life aware that everything that he did, every detail, Christ knew. Christ was there. He lived his whole life in the presence of Christ. Look at verse 17, same chapter. 2.17, last verse in this chapter. For we are not like many peddling the Word of God, selling it, but as from sincerity. Remember his conscience? Sincere. But as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Boy, when you do things, you say, I'm saying this in the presence of Christ. He's honored in that. The, the last verse talks about our struggle and our battle. Verse 11. The reason that we don't continue on in unforgiveness is that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we're not ignorant of his schemes. Here's what Satan can do. He says, oh yeah, there's one alone over there. I'm going to go get them and 
caused them grief and despair. I'm going to make them very unhappy. Even worse, it's possible for a scheming, personal, evil, angelic being such as one as Satan to take advantage of something. He certainly does that, doesn't he? He's going to overstress this. And there's a failure to handle the situation properly. Satan comes in. He wants to tear up the church. He wants to take individuals. He wants them to take them into the worldly things and away from God. When we don't forgive, we fall into this kind of trap. It hinders humility. It hinders mercy and joy and love and obedience and all of those kind of things. He wants to drive people into sin, further into sin. He wants to drive them to ultimate despair. He doesn't want to make people happy. He starts with that because he is deceitful, as the Word says here. He makes you think that it's beautiful. And then it turns ugly. And He does that with everything. He goes about like a roaring lion seeking some He can devour as He's disguised as an angel of light. He wants to sift us like wheat. Remember Peter? Jesus said, Satan's going to sift you like wheat. But then, I will restore you. Jesus says. Forgiveness is a medicine for a broken heart. And one of the things that marks Paul out here, this majesty that he has, is that he brings forth this difficult subject and topic and he pleads for them. He pleads for his personal enemy that they would forgive him. That is saying a lot. You think of Paul. He wants things right, right? He didn't want him to be overwhelmed and taken in by, by Satan. One final point. It's one sentence. The discipline worked. And if it's not overdone, discipline will always work. Because God is in on it. And so we practice discipline, we practice forgiveness, and we have the reasons why. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Sometimes it's really hard hitting. But you've given us directions of how the church is to work. It's simple directions that are perfect and they are good. And it's all because it honors you, it glorifies you. Because you want a clean church. And you are doing that. You'll do that till Christ comes back. And so we look to that, Lord, and help us in our own personal sins that we'd be disciplined at the same time when we see somebody that needs needs a lift up, they have a burden, that we can go to them regardless of what the situation. Talk to them giving the very person of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.